This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Thomas Shanley. Dr. Shanley is the Chair and Professor of Pediatrics at the Lurie Children's Hospital and Northwestern Medical School. He's also the Chief Research Officer at the Manny Research Center, all in Chicago, Illinois. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. It's a real delight to be here. Tom, um, you're known in our community for decades of NIH-sponsored research on inflammatory mediators in lung injury and in sepsis. Uh, for the last two years, you have a new role. You are uh, the senior physician at one of uh, the premier children's hospitals in the United States, the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. And with that lens, you now have more than just the uh, biology that you've always uh, brought to our field in applications of patient care, but you have a new lens on, on quality and how to achieve optimal outcomes as part of your daily obligation to your hospital. Can you take us through how you're approaching this and what we should know and what colleagues around the world should know about this? Uh, I'd, I'd love to, Jeff, yes. I, I think that um, the scientific uh, applications that I had worked on in the past were really one of the uh, components of taking a more comprehensive approach towards trying to work to improve patient outcomes. And so what I would really like to do for the audience today is walk through some of those strategies that we've used. And I think one of the first components that you have to do is really understand a particular disease um, that bothers you understand what the burden of that disease is because it's important to really pick something important to want to tackle. I think the next component is making sure that you understand the pathophysiology because understanding the pathophysiology is going to enable us to develop the guidelines and the tools of clinical management that direct one towards that pathophysiology that you're trying to reverse. Um, so I hope that um, by doing so, I'll be able to also introduce some of the research understanding in my particular cohort of interests, children with sepsis, that have enabled us to begin to try to move the field further in terms of improving outcomes, because I think you're going to need a discovery platform to be able to build upon quality initiative and patient safety activity to really achieve optimal outcomes. And so I'll encourage, while I'll be talking about lung injury and sepsis, I'll encourage people to be thinking about their own particular cohort and how they might be able to apply such a comprehensive strategy to themselves. So Tom, could you take us through an actual case um, and how you would apply this? Sure. I, I, I'd actually like to go back to, to my own training uh, when I was a resident and uh, harken back to the patient population that would develop lung injury and uh, didn't know enough about how to manage those patients effectively and yet had a very high mortality rate. So the typical patients that we would see at that time is one of the more recent cases that we dealt with, which was a four-year-old who woke up uh, after a couple of days of a typical upper respiratory infection with a runny nose and some coughing. Uh, on the morning that she woke up, her mom noticed that she was significantly febrile and breathing much faster than she had been before. When she contacted her pediatrician, given the description that the pediatrician heard was referred into our emergency department. And by the time she got to our emergency department, she was 
noted to be febrile. Uh, her heart rate was elevated with tachycardia, and she was breathing quickly, uh, as uh, the pediatrician had alluded to from that standpoint. On further examination, the clinicians in the emergency department hear some rouse in the right base. And so given her presentation of fatigue and some uh, additionally decreased peripheral perfusion and some modeling of her skin, uh, she was initiated on a non-rebreather face mask and given some normal saline IV uh, fluids and a chest x-ray was obtained, which showed a fairly classic right lower lobar pneumonia. Uh, and so intravenous antibiotics are given to her. Uh, timing of that is really critical. Uh, and then she's admitted to the intensive care unit with impending respiratory failure. And as is typical with many of these kids, as she progressed fairly rapidly, so even though she was on 100% oxygen, her saturation by pulse oximetry was reduced only in the mid-80s. And so the decision is made to uh, endotracheally intubate her and put her on mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, in addition, her tachycardia continues to persist and her blood pressure continues to drop. And so she's given 120 cc's per kilo of normal saline fluid altogether uh, over a period of time. And eventually, vasoactive agents in the form of epinephrine to support her blood pressure are initiated. So this is a very typical clinical scenario of what we deal with all the time and starts to give me the pause in terms of, okay, what's the burden of this disease? How often does it happen and why does it happen? And understanding that hopefully guides our management principles as we move through things. So uh, thinking about how we define the problem, uh, it wasn't all that long ago when uh, many of our colleagues uh, sat down and defined what we meant in terms of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome as well as sepsis, et cetera. The definition is, specifically is less important than the concept of defining what you mean by your problem. Because once one's able to define that problem, such as sepsis, we're able to start to measure the burden of that problem. And so I think as uh, many of our colleagues started to look at the epidemiology of sepsis on the basis of these definitions now, we realized that it was a much bigger problem than anyone had previously identified. And even today, I think it remains well among the top five causes of mortality in children uh, in the U.S. It has a significant health cost burden from the standpoint of the cost. And when one thinks about sepsis around the world, and thinking about the combination of diarrheal illnesses, malaria, dengue, pneumonia, HIV and AIDS, we think about it's a significant global burden. So there's an estimate of over 600 deaths per hour and 11 deaths of children per minute when we think about the global burden. So I think one of the key things that take home for me is really tackle an important problem. And when we think about the epidemiologic burden of sepsis in children, uh, it's a significant one to try to tackle. When I talked about the opportunity to then improve uh, care, one of the important features is really understanding its pathophysiology. And as you so kindly alluded to, uh, much of my early work in research was really under, understanding the fundamental interaction between the pathogen. Uh, in this case, the child ended up having staph aureus, uh, both from her sputum and her bloodstream. And more importantly, it was the host response to that pathogen that we understood was really critical to mediating the physiologic response to the infection that we so commonly see in our intensive care unit. And so we've learned a great deal about the initial cytokine response that occurs by the host in an attempt to both contain and eradicate the pathogen. 
as well as the mechanisms that resolve the inflammation. We've spent a number of years trying to understand the anti-inflammatory pathways that are responsible for counteracting the pro-inflammation that we so commonly see. Uh, as a result of that, uh, immunologic and inflammatory response, however, is what we end up seeing as clinicians at the bedside. Understanding the immunologic and inflammatory response uh, predicates then that clinical response that we see at the bedside is manifested by the shock, such as our, the patient in our case uh, had on presentation. And so we know that the categorizations of shock include hypovolemic, cardiogenic, and then distributive shock. And the fun thing for me as an intensive care doc in managing shock is that, or septic shock, is that each of those is typically present when a child has sepsis. So we've understood from the endothelial injury and the induction of gap junction malfunction that endothelial leak leads to a reduction in the effective circulating volume. Uh, we also know from mechanisms related to cytokine production, uh, probably most commonly TNF and interleukin-1, uh, activating the inducible nitric oxide pathway that results in some reduction in the myocardial performance. So cardiogenic shock associated with sepsis is very common. But we do, th we do also know that the vasodilatory uh, mechanism physiologically that's associated with that pro-inflammatory cytokine response really requires us to often increase the systemic vascular resistance with many of the vasopressor agents that we typically use. But one of the things that I think became most common in terms of early sepsis was the hypovolemia component of it and our need to want to fill the tank, uh, being able to give sufficient fluid resuscitation to restore effective circulating volume and normal perfusion pressure to maintain organ function. In thinking through that need to do that, it then moves me into the concept of now that we understand the pathophysiology and what's needed from a management standpoint, how good are we at doing that? And so I hearken back to some of the early studies that looked at the importance of volume resuscitation. And I think it's clear that when we look historically at what we did, there was concern that volume resuscitations of kids in sepsis might contribute to worsening lung injury because of pulmonary edema, or potentially even cerebral edema because of a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier and vascular leak in the brain. We know from studies that were done decades ago now that neither of those actually happened, and that in fact, if individuals did aggressive fluid resuscitation at that time defined as more than 40 cc's per kilo, that the outcomes were significantly improved. So there was clear data that suggested that we really needed to do aggressive fluid resuscitation from that standpoint. So it was in uh, those kinds of observations that really led us to developing what the guidelines were for shock. And now those have been through a series of iterations, the most recent guidelines published in the last year or so. And I think one of the things is that it always predicates early recognition and early fluid resuscitation as the first key step on that. So one of, one of the things that I think is important is when we say or, or develop guidelines that predicate what the best practice should be, are we sure that we're doing that overall from that standpoint? And one of the things that I think has been interesting is try to look at how often people are following the typical guidelines for fluid resuscitation. And I would pause here for a second, Jeff, and, and um, center people around what I describe as the iterative cycle of discovery and the necessary components to really move things from bench 
to the bedside, to population understanding, to implementation, and then really going circling back in terms of population-based observations to ask the next question at the bench to bedside. I, so I, I describe this as an iterative cycle of discovery uh, and I think individuals who do any kind of scholarly work and research can find themselves somewhere on that wheel contributing to the improvement in the knowledge that we have that predicates how we should do a better job of caring for kids uh, that are critically ill. So if we, if we step back then and look at the data that describes our success in implementation of practicing the guidelines, uh, I, I hearken to a few studies that would demonstrate that those kids, as we looked at a group that were resuscitated by providers outside of the emergency room and looked at the outcomes from kids, it's clear that when one practices the AHA or the FCCM guidelines in terms of fluid resuscitation, there's a superior benefit to outcomes. And in fact, not only uh, hemodynamic outcomes, but neuromorbidity was actually reduced substantially as well. And so we know that resuscitation that's done according to the guidelines has a significant odds ratio improvement in terms of reducing mortality. And in fact, when, you, when one's successful in achieving that resuscitation, there's a significant improvement in outcomes from that standpoint. Unfortunately, not everyone does that. And so I think it's up to us to continue to arm the community with this information, uh, as well as making sure that there's systems put in place that look at how we do in terms of following each of the guidelines. In addition, when we think about sepsis and the effect on the myocardium, uh, I think very old hemodynamic data, which we actually haven't redone in a, a long time, it would be fascinating to see if the same hemodynamic profiles in sepsis exist as they used to. If we think about uh, the, the patient cohort with the highest mortality rate, we know that they were characterized by both a low cardiac index, suggestive of myocardial depression, but interestingly uh, and unexpectedly, a higher systemic vascular resistance. And so when one understood that physiology and one can detect that clinically at the bedside, now we know that our management should involve not just inotropic support and being sure that we've got a stable blood pressure, but eventually as well, introducing perhaps after load reduction and now uh, that it really begins to harken back to the, the study where we looked at the implication of milrinone uh, in pediatric sepsis. And that makes sense to us, understanding that not only will mil would milrinone give a good inotropic effect, but under the right circumstances with stable blood pressure and, and uh, perfusion, that adding that component of afterload reduction uh, may in fact give better perfusion and has been associated with improved cardiac index and a less systemic vascular resistance. So again, I, I, I use those as examples in terms of how it should predicate the management by understanding the physiology that's going on from our kids. And I think it's really important, uh, often folks don't don't think about these guidelines in a comprehensive way uh, as having an impact on what we manage. And unfortunately, while there's not a lot of pediatric data, uh, I would uh, point out to our audience a lot of the adult data that has looked at the trends of mortality in sepsis over time, which has actually been reduced. And it's really been reduced without a, not a lot of new therapeutic targets per se, but really just the impact of figuring out a bundle of how to apply the appropriate management for a patient with sepsis given their current physiologic state. 
And so I think if one were to look at um, some interesting data of the adoption of compliance to guidelines that improves over time, and then the subsequent improvement in terms of mortality over time, there's really a direct linear correlation between those two things. So I, I would argue that uh, while no one often likes to be um, maybe uh, pigeonholed or given a cookbook in terms of specific management, I think the guidelines that are based on physiologic principles and then are applied in that, in that correct context can have a significant improvement in mortality and our overall outcomes. I'd like to pause now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your response, could you please first state your city and country location? And the question is this, do you follow an evidence-based clinical practice guideline in the management of children with sepsis in your intensive care unit? I'd like to follow with a second question. If you do follow a clinical practice guideline in your pediatric intensive care unit, can you tell us which national or international uh, guideline for the treatment of a child in septic shock that you follow. We're back now with Dr. Tom Shanley. Tom, that's a, a wonderful overview um, because your emphasis is on uh, good processes will drive good outcomes. And those good processes have to be predicated on understanding the physiology of the disease in order to understand how to manage it. And guidelines reduce variability and that is often the most effective way to drive good processes, which will then drive good outcomes. But I suspect that this case continued to evolve in the uh, pediatric ICU environment. How can we think about that, driving good processes in the pediatric ICU to improve outcomes? Right, Jeff. Uh, so as you're alluding to, the, there is more to the case than initial, uh, initially presented. So while uh, in the initial few days after stabilization, the child starts to demonstrate some improvement, uh, and we were on the way, had weaned off of vasoactive agents, on the way of weaning down on the FiO2 and PEEP, uh, a day five into her illness, uh, there was a sudden exacerbation. She required additional fluid resuscitation for some hypotension. We had to reinduce some vasoactive support. Um, and in fact, on chest x-ray, she has a further development of pulmonary edema that was all associated with a febrile, uh, recurrence of a febrile episode. Uh, as we um, considered what was happening at this standpoint, then we, we worried about the development of a secondary infection complicating this initial process. And so I think uh, it's, it warrants us thinking through how we address this kind of scenario, both in terms of reducing the triggers to secondary infections, and then I want to dive into a little bit of specific research that may give us insight in terms of how critically ill kids might actually be immunosuppressed and therefore can't or succumb to secondary bacterial infectious complications when they're in the setting of the ICU with us. And what I um, want to do in emphasizing both of these components of it is, is really give, uh, for, from my standpoint, a key philosophical approach that we've adopted in terms of thinking about improving outcomes. You know, everybody opts for a theoretical best in terms of an outcome. If we think about sepsis, the theoretical best would be that 100% of kids survive. Somewhere, there's a unit that works and has a best outcome that's known across a very a broad range of outcomes from that standpoint. 
we would consider that center to possess the actual best. And each group, I think, should be looking at their current performance and trying to aim for what that best uh, center is doing. And in order to do that component of it, I think requires quality initiative and patient safety activity. I think it requires units working together, sharing data and sharing outcomes and sharing best practices so that we can achieve what I would describe as the actual best current outcome from that standpoint. In addition to that, when we think about the noise that's around outcomes because of variations in practice, if your quality and patient safety activity is able to reduce that variation and reduce the noise, when we start to do interventional trials on top of that, the likelihood of us being able to see a beneficial effect uh, will, will be greatly enhanced by reducing the variation of noise around that signal. So I try to encourage our clinician investigators to really think about the beauty of the importance of the quality initiative and patient safety co colleagues that they're working with uh, each day from that standpoint. Now, for us to be able to move from the actual best that that single center is achieving to the theoretical best of having every kid survive with sepsis, that really requires a translational research platform and a discovery platform. And so I think thinking through both of those domains um, and highlighting some of the work that people are doing and, and have done to have an impact on outcomes will sort of highlight what I'm trying to emphasize here as we go through this. So for example, the first thing is reducing a potential trigger to an exacerbation of clinical worsening from that standpoint. And so I think about the clinical quality initiatives related to reducing bloodstream infections. And so those of us that work in the pediatric intensive care unit, I think are very fortunate to, to be in an environment where there's so much um, room for error, unfortunately, and such an extraordinary impact of that error in terms of outcomes that it really does behoove us to think carefully about the, the processes that we do put in place, as you were alluding to. Uh, I am really proud of our subspecialty a, a number of years ago of really kind of trying to take the lead in self-defining what we think those important quality outcomes should be. Uh, and uh, the published work uh, among those has been really trying to reduce central line associated uh, bloodstream infections. And uh, in thinking about this particular kid, the potential of her developing eclapsy as an explanation for her worsening is really one of many examples of the burden that we have of eclapsies affecting outcomes. And so there's a number of data that demonstrate both the increased uh, length of stay as well as, frankly, the increased mortality that's associated with some of those complications. So as many people have done, um, there's been a lot of variation in terms of what people have done in terms of insertion bundles and compliance bundles. And both in terms of local environments, developing those protocols and um, developing an accountability structure for auditing the compliance with both insertion and compliance bundles has had a significant reduction. We have data from our own center, but I think even more impressive is really data from the national initiative in which we've seen a significant reduction, which really has saved kids' lives. When you look at the predictability of the lives that have been saved and the return on investment of this program in terms of avoidance of healthcare cost, it's been a real substantial success story. And I think we need to continue to think about how we do that for many of the infectious complications, whether it be CAUTI or VAP and our ongoing tackling of the CLAPSI challenge, that we continue to work and do that aspect of it. 
I think there's some interesting observational data as well from the European sites and the France that also suggest additional areas. We know that delay in recognition of disease, delay in sepsis recognition being a common one, is associated for worsening morbidity and longer lengths of stay uh, in French intensive care units. Uh, often an underestimate of the disease is associated with worsening outcomes because of a lack of early and attentive management from that standpoint. So I think it behooves us to always be thinking about the observations that we're making in the intensive care unit, tracking our quality outcomes effectively, sharing our best practices as a community, and understanding how we continue to use that platform to improve our outcomes. I'd like to turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your response, could you please first state your city and country location? And the question is this. Dr. Shanley has just described the importance of implementation of evidence-based guidelines and the need to try to reduce variation around the implementation of those guidelines. In your intensive care unit, what are the common reasons for variability in implementation of evidence-based guidelines? We're back now with Dr. Tom Shanley. Tom, I, I wonder if we could now address something that um, I know you well recognize that um, these are methodical steps to prevent harm from our treatments to the critically ill child. But your decades of research, of course, were about the discovery of therapies to help improve critically ill children from whatever disorder they were, they were suffering from, but in particular your research was in sepsis. Can we move into that domain and how you think about that? Sure, because I think at, while we want to try to think we can control many of the processes that we do and, and that subsequently improve outcomes, I think we also have to acknowledge that there's a lot of complex biology that remains at play in kids with sepsis that we don't fully understand. And uh, so I, I think some of the observations that we've tried to make have started to give a little bit of insight in terms of what those mechanisms may be, and in fact, maybe what some new therapeutic options uh, might be identified from that standpoint. So I, I think one of the questions that we began asking is what happens to the patients that happen to survive their sepsis, and what, what do they progress to from that standpoint? And I would pause there for just a second and just remind uh, our audience and, and viewers that uh, thinking through and paying attention to their outcomes in whatever their cohort is often may um, possess some signals there that we might otherwise have paid attention to. So if, while we traditionally look at 28-day mortality, for example, in terms of sepsis outcomes, only by extending out our observation of a cohort uh, over time did we recognize that there were, in fact, a number of deaths that were occurring beyond the 28 days and, in fact, beyond patients' initial survival of the sentinel event and subsequent discharge to home, recoming in, though, with a second um, uh, recrudescence of an inflammatory state and, uh, and sometimes death. Now, to be fair, when we've looked at that late outcome data, there really have been a series of tiers of the types of patients. Uh, those with cancer, first of all, because obviously children that come in with cancer and sepsis, uh, even if they survive their first bout, their, their likelihood uh, of surviving secondary bouts of, of sepsis with their cancer or even surviving their cancer perhaps over the next year is one of the common causes that affect and impact our mortality there. In addition, beyond cancer, there are a number of comorbidities, whether they be technologically dependent children or children with uh, other types of chronic illnesses, and we know that they're going to be at a much higher risk. 
But in fact, when we looked overall at the cohort that had neither cancer nor other comorbidities, there still was a signal there that many of these kids ended up being readmitted to the hospital, many of them with a higher rate of typical mortality than would be predicted. Uh, and so it raised, again, our suspicion that there was, for some reason, a biologic change in terms of the host's response after they had survived a sepsis insult. And so in order to try to gain a little bit of insight of that, that really led to the build of our translational research program uh, where part of that work was built upon looking at gene expression profiling. So it really takes us into a foray into our translational research program. Uh, and as you well know, this was uh, re really led uh, in part with by Hector Wong when we were partners together in Cincinnati, and, and he has continued to shepherd uh, this study, really looking at gene expression profiling in a characteristics of kids, uh, both normal and those with sepsis, and in particularly those with sepsis who died. Uh, the, the gene expression profiling that we have done over the years has really identified some interesting observations. Uh, the first, uh, for someone who studied interleukin-10 as a canonical anti-inflammatory cytokine, was that late in the, in the analysis on, on the 72-hour sample, so 72 hours after admission to the intensive care unit, among all the pathways that was highest expressed, interleukin-10 was the one pathway that really popped out. So there's a signal suggesting there that in the throes of the resolution of this, uh, you know, early resuscitation and pro-inflammatory response that the kids come in with, there's this big signal of anti-inflammation at day three, uh, suggesting that there may be an opportunity to, to figure out whether kids are too immunosuppressed by circulating interleukin-10, for example. In addition, we always wondered, we'd, we'd always moved into the study thinking about genes that went up and forgot that the gene expression profiling would tell us about genes that also went significantly down. And uh, to our initial surprise, many of the pathways that we identified as being significantly repressed in the setting of sepsis, particularly among those that didn't survive, were Im immune-related pathways. So T-cell, B-cell, natural killer cell signaling pathways uh, that both at, upon admission and at day three sampling uh, showed significant repression uh, of their gene expression pattern. So I would say that much of the genomic insight that we gained from this profiling was that uh, not only were there canonical uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine pathways that were elevated, as one would predict, and it provided nice biologic plausibility of the approach that we took, but in these same patients, there were significantly elevated anti-inflammatory pathways like interleukin-10 and significant repression of immune-related gene pathways. So then the question became is how, how might we be able to garner this insight in terms of looking at functional immune responses? And as we began to look across not just sepsis, uh, but other um, diseases, that we started to continue to see the signal of increased anti-inflammation and decreased functional immune responsiveness. Classically, uh, the hyporesponsiveness is measured in a couple of ways. Uh, the canonical functional response is usually taking whole blood and uh, inoculating that whole blood in endotoxin-containing fluid and looking for a TNF response that's measurable from that standpoint. A normal response, meaning that the blood cells are responding to a typical pathogen marker like endotoxin and responding therefore with TNF. The other way is looking at the expression of HLA-DR on circulating monocytes as a marker of differentiation. 
So when that is reduced in circulating cells, we know that there's a, a de-differentiation and a lack, of, typically a lack of responsiveness of those circulating immune cells. So uh, we've looked in cardiopulmonary bypass and have been able to show that the highest risk patients are those that have a reduced uh, functional response to LPS, at the same time having an increased expression of interleukin-10. Uh, when others, Dr. Hall at Nationwide Children's, has looked at the occurrence of nosocomial infections in children with multiple organ function. Uh, we've noted that those, again, with low HLA-DR expression and simultaneously low TNF response to endotoxin challenge are the ones that's the cohort that's at the highest risk for having nosocomial infections, and in fact is almost where all the subsequent deaths were. And even looking at flu, and I know Dr. Randolph here at Boston Children's working with Dr. Hall had looked at this endotoxin response in influenza and seen in those patients compared to normal controls have a significantly reduced response again to LPS. And in fact, those children that died from their influenza have a significantly reduced expression from that standpoint. So it gives us a clue that there's something really critical about this hypoimmune functional host response that actually creates a signal to knowing that that patient cohort is probably at risk for poor outcomes, whether it's the development of nosocomial infection risks and subsequent organ failure or death. Uh, I think it's a patient cohort that if we actually had that information, we probably would pay attention to that and think about managing those kids in a different way. That's a way to improve outcomes that we really haven't begun to address yet from that standpoint. So I want to just dive in real quickly, if I may, to uh, our newer area that we're working on in terms of our research, which is why is that functional response happening? And when one thinks about it, uh, uh, basically, that there's a stimulation of a gene expression profile that should be happening that's not. And so it pointed us to think through, well, what are the mechanisms by which genes are expressed? And so we know that there's a number of transcriptional machinery aspects of it where, the, where promoter activities to drive the mRNA transcription might be altered. We know on the back end that there's also the stabilization of mRNA that occurs at the three-primed untranslated region. And so we do know that there are some mechanisms that affects that. One of the newer areas that I think affects clearly gene expression are epigenetics. And uh, the common the three common mechanisms by which there's epigenetic modifications include the methylation of the DNA directly, which affects the binding of the transcriptional machinery to drive gene expression. One of the areas that we've focused on in specific are histone modifications. And we know that these proteins, these histone proteins that the DNA is coiled around, can have post-translational modifications occur to them. The particular modifications that we've looked at are methylation. And certain methylations of the components of those proteins can either change the chromatin structure such that there's a sort of a tighter coiling and therefore the transcriptional machinery can't get to that promoter region to drive transcription. We consider those gene off signatures and we know that other methylations or other post-histone modifications change the chromatin structure to really open it up and therefore enable actually accelerated access of the transcriptional machinery to really drive transcription. So we, in the work, have hypothesized that there may be epigenetic modifications that are occurring that influence this gene expression response to endotoxin to alter it. And so in some of the work, uh, exciting work that came out of the genome uh, profiling in the kids with sepsis, it was interesting that there was a signal there of overexpression 
of many of the molecules that are responsible for the gene re repression machinery. And so I think even in our early work from the sepsis, tri the sepsis study, there's a suggestion that maybe the activation of this gene off signature might be responsible for the attenuation of the response. So we continue to do those mechanistic studies to understand whether it's modifiable. Uh, and since there's so many new molecules that are being developed to attenuate epigenetic machinery, where I used to be able to answer the question, or had to answer the question, that I wasn't sure whether we'd even be able to modify epigenetics, I think increasingly with the work that's going on in cancer and other areas of biomedical science, I think the hope of being able to do targeted epigenetic modification therapeutically is really there. Tom, it's a fascinating overview. You just bundled together complex science in about five minutes. Uh, but I have to challenge you a little bit. Um, you and I both know that uh, the promise of manipulating the immune response in just the right way has been with us for almost two decades now. And I well remember, as you do, uh, the NIH-funded RCTs. You know, we're going to block... Uh, TNF-alpha, we're going to block IL-6, uh, IL-1, all negative studies. Are we finally getting closer to translating the wonderful science that you just described into a therapy that you and I are going to be giving in the next couple of years to a child with septic shock? Well, I hope so. Um, and I, I would highlight maybe a, a couple of emerging technical platforms that I would hope would help us. So one is getting back to this concept of measuring the functional response. Uh, as you know, the traditional response that I've been referring to is um, taking some blood, sticking it into a test tube with endotoxin, waiting for four hours for that to incubate, then taking that supernatant off, doing another ELISA over a few hours. And so the concept of actually being able to maybe have that functional immune response in near real time uh, ha hasn't been available to us. Uh, one of the most exciting parts of the, the last phase of my research career has been partnering with engineers to try to look at solutions and technical platform solutions to be able to give us this kind of information to the clinicians at the bedside, both in terms of affecting management and then getting to your important point, I think, in terms of stratifying patients more effectively for better clinical trial design. So the work that we've been uh, developing has been trying to essentially do that immune phenotyping aspect of it, but to do it on a microfluidic chip. So in partnership with engineers, we continue to work on and uh, automate a process whereby with very little amounts of blood, so microliter amounts of blood that can be introduced into a microfluidic chip, uh, we can create some antibody incubation to isolate whatever cell type you may be interested in. So for example, anti-CD14 to trap CD14 monocytes. Within the microfluidic environment, through another channel, we're able to then introduce endotoxin and stimulate the cells. We know that for a normal functional response, we only need to do that for about two hours. And then we would be able to measure the functional cellular response uh, in terms of TNF with perhaps a, a newer platform. So the additional component that we've been working with the engineers is called localized plasma on surface resonance imaging. And to be able to use that technology, uh, we've been able to demonstrate that if you, um, whatever analyte you may be interested in, and as long as there's an antibody or perhaps an aptamer that's available to pick up that analyte, uh, 
it's easy to actually bond those to gold plates. Uh, once you're able to do that, the analyte binding can create a spectral shift based on just the size of the shift that occurs because of the binding of the analyte. And what we've been able to demonstrate is that there's very, first of all, there's very little cross-reactivity. We've tested this with six of the typical cytokines that would be important to sort of measure in sepsis, including TNF, so that we can do this for the functional immune response component of it. Uh, perhaps maybe more, most exciting is that in order for the signal to reach equilibrium, in other words, give us the maximal uh, signal whereby we now have a quantifiable measurement, really takes 35 minutes. So if you start to think about the implications of that, if we go back to the genomic expression profiling work where uh, Dr. Wang has published on the Persevere biomarkers, a set of five markers that really predict increased mortality up to 40% or more, versus a negative predictive value of zero mortality. We can get that information at the bedside within 35 minutes. And wouldn't that be a much better way to stratify our patients into a potential immune-modulating therapeutic trial from that standpoint? In addition, now instead of taking a four-hour incubation and then another four-hour ELISA, we might be able to have the functional immune phenotyping in your hands within a few hours instead. And so, and because both of them are done on such very little fluid amounts, uh, we could do those on a, certainly on a daily basis, but maybe even on, a, on an hourly basis from that standpoint. And I do think that implication of the microfluidic approach with the low volume of blood that's required to get this information could potentially be transformative for neonates and the neonatal intensive care unit management, where sepsis also is a major challenge from their aspect. So my hope is that as we further refine automate and scale these types of platforms, I think there's going to be an opportunity to have point-of-care tests that will give us information that helps us manage the patients that we see on a daily basis in the ICU more effectively. Uh, and that's the kind of contribution we hope to improving outcomes that these types of platforms are able to do. Uh, I, I do want to just reemphasize that it's a partnership with engineering. And I think anybody who might be thinking about a, a problem that they have clinically and is looking for a good partner to try to solve those, engineers are really good problem solvers. And we probably should get together with them more often in our setting to look for ways to utilize that partnership to further advance what we do in terms of improving outcomes overall. So that's really a summary of what I think are the new opportunities from uh, the standpoint of platforms that we're building. I'd like to pause now and ask another question to our colleagues around the world. In your response, could you please state your country and city location? And the question is this. If we imagine a platform to measure inflammatory biomarkers, as Dr. Shanley has just described, which patient population besides those with children with septic shock might you use it on in your pediatric intensive care unit? We're back now with Dr. Shanley. Uh, Tom, that's a promising and uh, exciting uh, intervention to imagine, um, as you said, to know in 35 minutes how to stratify the risk profile of this patient with sepsis and to overcome, you know, one RCT that bundles everyone together. Right. Um, can I ask you this? Um, you've been visiting Professor here over the last several days, and um, I've been having you speak to our fellows, and you said something yesterday about a question that I asked you related to the, where's the translational science um, 
to help us further understand immune regulation, where is it likely to come from? Right. Could you touch on that? Uh, certainly the, the great work of uh, Hector Wong and yourself and, and others like you is doing the job. Right. It's, it's helping us understand. But you, you also pointed to uh, another highly promising field. Yeah, I, well, I think it's unlikely at this stage with the information and the numbers and the approach that we have to think that we're going to restudy uh, a lot of sepsis trials, particularly in pediatrics. What I would predict is that the emergence of immune therapies for cancer, in particularly CAR-T therapies, uh, where we have all begun to start to observe this hypercytokine response uh, that appears at least in part to be driven by interleukin-6 and probably interleukin-1, might afford an opportunity for us to think operationally about, here's a kid in, that appears to be in a cytokine storm. If it's related to that in CAR-T, let's measure the IL-6. Let's measure the IL-1 at the bedside, make sure it's elevated, and therefore know that we're giving the inhibitors to these two agents, which are both clinically available to use now, to be able to attenuate the inflammation. If the same scenario is there, and neither of those cytokines are elevated, and we're in a sort of a traditional pathogen-driven, perhaps, response, where we, know, where we know steroids might be important. We may have to sacrifice, if you will, the CAR-T therapies with steroid use, uh, but be able to try to salvage the kid from their septic shock from that standpoint. So I, I would suggest and submit that perhaps cancer immune therapy contexts is going to be one in which using these kinds of platforms to give clinicians that bedside information where we have approved therapies to be able to modify the immune system in the right way starts to get people confident in our ability to maybe scale that kind of approach to other diseases where we may not know quite as much in terms of guidelines be that sepsis, be that perhaps post-cardiopulmonary bypass aspects of it. So that would be my prediction in terms of where I think uh, the future may be in terms of immune-modulating therapies. Well, Dr. Tom Shanley, I'm sure I speak for colleagues around the world in uh, first saluting you for the research that you've done over the last several decades, but for this talk today, which um, challenges us to focus on things that are right in front of us mm -hmm. and standardizing our processes and working hard to make sure that we execute process as best we can to drive good outcomes, and then taking us forward into a, a time not too far away, we hope, uh, where we can see how new advances from the research you and others have been doing could actually allow us to improve outcomes even more. So for all of this, uh, we thank you for joining us today on the World Share Practice Forum. It's my great pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for the opportunity. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.